Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl was lucky enough to attend much of the U.S. Open these last couple weeks, so I know he'll have even more insights than usual from that experience and being in the press room and all of that. And since our last episode was a bit truncated by my technological mishaps, we have a lot to cover with the women's side of the U.S. Open. We, we had a lot of interesting things to say, and they all got eaten by my mic malfunction. So what I want to focus on is the four women who made it to the semifinals. Those are obviously the, the biggest stories from the U.S. Open. As, as we all probably know by now, they're all four Americans, which is the first time in 36 years at the U.S. Open. But now that we are through with the tournament, we have a first-time champion in Sloane Stevens. We have a first-time finalist in Madison Keys. And we have another great performance from Venus Williams, uh, another kind of rather surprising performance from Coco Vandoy to get to the semifinals as well. But let's start by talking about Sloane, Carl. Um, what did you think of, of Sloane this last week, and what do you think we can expect from her going forward? I think we can expect great things because it wasn't just this past week or two weeks, but she had put together a great run earlier in the American hardcore season, specifically in Toronto and Cincinnati. She She's looked really steady and just won a lot of matches against good players. And she seems smarter on the court. I, I guess that's not surprising. She's a few years older than when she first made her breakthrough. She's had more time to play matches and get coached and, and just learn from experience. But her decision-making seemed pretty flawless. Uh, and that that wasn't, I think, her competitive advantage the first time she was making the late rounds at, at majors and, and getting everybody excited. So I'm, I'm pretty encouraged. Uh, I mean, she, she had all the technical aspects down that there's not much to criticize. Maybe she's not that confident at net, but she was really speedy chasing down drop shots and, and finishing points when she was brought up there. Her first and second serves were pretty solid. I think her second serve, like most women's players, could be better, but it's it's not the the weakest one out there. And her her backhand seems much improved. But I really think it's it's just her decision making, her her choices on a shot by shot basis that are really encouraging for the short short term future. Yeah, I would agree. I was pleasantly surprised, impressed, all of that with Sloan. And I, uh, I was ready to be the opposite because I, the first match I saw of hers at this U.S. Open was the match against Sevastova. And I saw it with American commentators who were friends with Kamal Murray, her coach, and very supportive of Sloan. And my first instinct when I hear that sort of thing is to just write it all off as nonsense because tennis is so clubby and insular sometimes. And it felt like it was Sloan's PR people giving me the, the rundown on, on how skilled she was, how talented she was, how good her coaching was, all this stuff. It was, it was so positive it was hard to believe. But as you say she was as good as advertised. She's so incredibly fast. Uh, she looks kind of relaxed, maybe too relaxed on court sometimes, but when she gets moving, holy crap, she's fast. And as you point out, her decision-making was, was really solid, better than I remember from before the comeback. And based on what the commentators were saying about her coach, Kamau Murray, he sounded like the kind of guy who might not be analytically minded like we are, but it was very prepared, like the sort of guy to watch, I don't know how much match video is average for a coach's preparation, but it sounds like he watches a lot. He gives Sloan a lot of information going into matches, and that's something that maybe to, to people like us, it seems like a no-brainer, but I think it's not. I think it doesn't happen that commonly, and if he is being smarter than the average coach, more prepared, uh, more knowledgeable, then that could be giving her, her an edge as long as he's not overwhelming her with information. Um, the one thing that... that yeah, and you know, just, just to... Recent, yeah. Sorry, just, just to mention two things. One, I think the Sevastova match was her at her worst at this tournament, and we wouldn't be talking about her if she hadn't just barely made it through. Uh, but even there, it, playing against a very another very tactically sound consistent player, the, the fact that she was still able to, to make it while not playing well or particularly confidently is is a good sign. And 
and then also, you know, I think we, we often credit coaches, but, um, you know, it takes, it takes the player to actually listen to them, incorporate what they say, and then remember it even in very high pressure situations. So it takes coach and, and being ready to be coached for that to pay off. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have the willingness from both sides. And I, I guess that the optimistic part of me that really looks up to these players likes to think that most of the players just need a better, more informed coach to take advantage of this sort of thing. But you're absolutely right that it's, it's probably not fair to assume that, that a lot of, a lot of players are, could be easily over-informed. And if, if Sloan is taking advantage of it, that's a, definitely a credit to her as well as to her coach. Um, the interesting thing to me about the Sevastopol match and the fact that that was the closest of every match she played, even though the Venus-Williams match was pretty close as well, is I dug into a lot of numbers for my economist rap on the final about Sloan, and what I discovered was among, among all women on tour, even before Sloan had this comeback that's been so successful, she's one of the best on tour playing women who are very aggressive. And I, I suppose we knew that already since she had a win in her pocket against Venus Williams a couple of years ago. She beat Serena very young. We know she can play these people who come out hitting big. And that's mostly who she ended up playing. She played Gerges, Ashley Barty, both pretty aggressive. Sybil Kova is pretty aggressive. Venus, Madison Keys is very aggressive. So, so in a, in a way, she got lucky playing the sort of the players with the sort of style that she's comfortable playing against. Savastova is not super passive, but she's sort of in the middle of the pack, like Stevens is herself. And that, as you say, it was, it was the closest match. It could easily have gone either way. Um, Sloan had to dig pretty deep to get through that. But what I found as well was when Sloan is playing the women who are the most passive, um, like the Wozniacki, Radvanska, Simona Halep, Svitolina kind of category, she's actually middle of the pack, maybe even a little bit below the middle of the pack. That's where she loses most of her matches. And we saw that this summer, two of the matches she lost were against Simona. One of them was against Wozniacki. And we didn't see her have to face that at all at the U.S. Open. She didn't play anybody in that bottom third of the most, the most passive players. Do you think that there's something about her game that creates a problem against, uh, against those players who are more passive, defensive, maybe tactical? Uh, it could be that they are just a little more steady, a little more consistent, or you know, a little more patient. Maybe she has the patience to, to play neutral balls for three or four shots, but not six or seven. Uh, it could be they're also slightly fitter than her. I mean, you, you do need to be incredibly fit to play that style. And she, she was just, you know, not walking and hitting out of a chair, which is a, a post injury exercise I too have enjoyed. She was doing that just a few, uh, months ago. So it could be that I, I know these stats are, are covering earlier in her career as well, but some of her recent losses have been to very steady players and it could be that well, she can last three hours with Venus Williams playing mostly short rallies. Uh, she would have more trouble playing a lot of really long rallies against like Simona Halep, Angelique Kerber, Caroline Wozniacki. It's, it's just a theory. I mean, it is yeah. an enormous sample size, but it, but it is a very interesting, uh, and persistent trend with her. Yeah, it is. Uh, and Wozniacki is maybe the most extreme of all those players since there's only one match since the comeback, but career Sloan is one in six against Wozniacki. And given how many people have managed to catch Woz on a bad or particularly passive day, I was surprised to see that, that she, she, she was so bad against Wozniacki. But it is part and parcel with her struggles against that sort of player in general. And while we're on that topic, before we, we move on to a couple other players, um, in that same the same article I'm talking about, I, I, I ran some numbers and came up with a, a conclusion that I can't totally make sense of, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, is that um, aggressive players are a little bit better than, than the rest of the pack, but not a lot. But they are the best against passive players. Now, that's not, not a huge surprise. I, you can make up a story to, to explain that. But the, the thing that I can't explain is that that effect doubles at Grand Slams. So why do you think it is that in these matchups, aggressive versus passive players, the two extremes of the sport, why would it be that aggressive players have that much more of an edge at Grand Slams? 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So my my first thought was a lot of the stats in that article, including like the number of Grand Slam singles titles won by aggressive players in recent years, could be skewed somewhat by Serena Williams. And Serena Williams just shows up proportionally for more Grand Slams and takes them more seriously. And certainly that was true earlier in, in the era that you're you're talking about. So that was my first thought as to what extent is this a Serena stat. Uh, my second is that at the slams, you get a day off almost every round. And at other tournaments, you often don't get a day off. And, and depending on where you're seated, you might get none. And maybe the players who have managed to succeed while building their whole game around being more consistent and defensive are among the fittest in, in terms of being able to play a really long match and then play a really long match the next day. And that advantage is smaller at the slams because everyone, including the aggressive players, gets that day off between matches. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and it, perhaps it, one way to that test that would be exactly. to see if the effect is stronger earlier in, in the slam. Yeah, your thoughts parallel mine pretty closely. I, I did test the Serena effect. I took her out of the sample, and it, it, the effect was still about the same. It was, she wasn't that big of a factor. Um, but the, the the day off business is maybe the most promising thing there. There's also a slight possibility we're looking at something with on-court coaching. Like, I would have thought that the aggressive players might be a little bit more in need of on-court coaching, but that is another difference between uh, slams and non-slams that could explain some of this. But but yeah, the, the day off seems like the, the biggest factor. Um, so... Yeah, and on, on the on-court coaching, it could... It could be just that, you know, the, the really big hitting players see ball, hit ball, and it's the other players who need to adjust their game more and be more tactical. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I wish we had a, a more randomized sample of things like on-court coaching and, and days off so we could actually test all this stuff. But, of course, because of the difference between ITF rules and WTA rules, then we end up with, a lot of the rule changes being applicable only in one place altogether. So we can't really randomize the test in the way we'd like to. Uh, so <coughs> let's talk about some other women. And let's start with Madison Keys. Uh, she had a pretty disappointing final, winning only three games against Sloane Stevens. I expected a lot better from her. Uh, do you think that she's one of these players who could follow in the example of the other aggressive players and maybe win several slams do you, or do you think that maybe this is this is going to be a once every couple of years good run thing for her i mean just general in, in, in general terms what what do you expect in the longer haul for madison keys well she's still quite young she's 22 uh whereas stevens is 24 and, and the other relatively young semifinalist vandaway is 25 so I think it's it's promising she's already made it late in slams a few times. I think this result is also or, or the extremity of the of the outcome the and the one sidedness of the outcome in, in the final is probably also somewhat of a fluke because I, I think her mobility wasn't normally as good as good as it normally is. She she had one of her legs wrapped late in her semi. Coco Vandeweghe wasn't able to take advantage, but Stevens is exactly the kind of player who could take advantage, and it just seemed that. That was affecting Keys and maybe also affecting her kind of mentally and emotionally that that knowing going into a slam final that you have a major disadvantage could could just really cloud your your judgment and your thinking. And Stevens played an almost flawless match. I think it was late in the first set before she hit her first unforced error. So, yeah, for all those reasons, I, I, I still ex- expect good things for um, for Keys' career. With both her and Stevens, it's potentially a concern that they've already missed time with injuries. They're, you know, this is again an empirical question, but I imagine that players who miss time early in their careers are more susceptible to missing time throughout their careers. So, for, for her sake, for the sake of American tennis, and for my sake, as I like watching her, I, I hope she cont- continues to be healthy. But that's a concern. Yeah, definitely, and I. If only from other sports, we can we can extrapolate that health is a skill. I mean, it, it, it that's the popular phrase from baseball, and 
it, it's not that we can blame it on someone exactly that they're getting injured all the time, but injuries do tend to foretell more injuries. So I hope she can break that trend with the struggle she's had. The fact that she's bounced back so well at an early age is, is really promising. And yeah, it seems, seems like the sky's the limit. I mean, since women's peaks seem to be coming later, the fact that she's playing so well at such an early age, despite having the time off and, it, it, it really speaks to how far she could go, but uh, she, she does have some development left. Uh, Coco Vandoy as well. I, I'm super surprised that she's been as successful ha- as she has been this year with the Slam semifinals, some really big upsets. Uh, do you think this is, this is a new level for Coco? Are we going to see her making Slam semifinals every season? Yeah, I mean, the fact that she's backed it up at at all the non-clay majors this year makes it seem real. I mean, again, we've had had a kind of strange set of circumstances in both the women's and men's fields. So it's a little hard to be sure. Like Serena Williams presumably is going to be coming back by the Australian Open, and that that could shake things up. Azarenka missed this tournament. Kvitova, Sharapova... um, probably not yet back to their to where they'll get to when they when they get more matches in but yeah the fact that Vandeweghe made the semi also by beating Pliskova who seemed to be finally rounding into form after starting the tournament pretty poorly was very promising and I also wouldn't make too much of how one-sided her semi was against Keys because Keys really was on that day and and not missing and I, I think Vandeweghe is also onto something with her work with Coach Pat Cash and coming to Netmore. I just think it's not quite ready yet. So she tried that as like a plan B against Keys and wasn't able to serve well enough or to volley well enough to make it worth work, although it wasn't really working any worse than anything else she was trying. But I, I think because it's such a change-up, because she does have a good serve and because she does have some good touch at net and is also, you know, mobility is not one of her competitive advantages – like back in the back of the court, I think it's a good idea and it it will, she'll only get better at it. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of potential there and it's, I tend to be skeptical of sort of a new coach boost stories. Um, but it does, it, it, it seems possible in this case, certainly Coco believes it and that counts for something. Um, you're right to say not to read too much into that semifinal against Madison Keys. It was a pretty disappointing match, but uh, by the same token, I think it's the third time they've played each other this summer, and the first two times were a lot closer. The Stanford final was seven six six four. Um, in Cincinnati, it was actually that's a rough first rounder to draw for Vandeweghe to draw Madison Keys there in the round of 64, but she pushed that to three sets, so. Uh, based on the evidence from this summer, Coco isn't that far away from being able to beat Madison Keys, even if she did have that one rough match. So lots of promise there. It, it, it's fascinating to think what what we could be getting from American women's tennis between these three women and, and Cece Bellis coming along. Amanda Anisimova had another great junior event. Uh, lots of really promising young women. Um, at the other extreme... Let's talk Venus Williams for a minute. She made it to another semifinal. She's had a great season. Um, she even had a shot at number one and then even a shot at number two um, as late as when she was playing that semifinal match. I think she said she wants to play until she's 40. Do you think she can keep this up? I mean, she's now at age 37, I believe. Uh, it, it, can we expect another season like this from her, from someone who's pushing 40, do you think? I don't think it's impossible. I, I think it's telling that she didn't really have a letdown. I, she had individual matches that were disappointing at majors this year, but she didn't have letdowns early in any of the tournaments. She even made the fourth round at the French Open and played like a, a really tough clay quarter well in exiting against Basinski. She was in position to win the first set of the Wimbledon final before disappearing. She played respectably against a pretty dominant Serena Williams at the Australian Open, and she was two points from beating Sloane Stevens in the U.S. Open semis. And if I'm right that Keys 
was not in a good position to win a match against anyone going into the final, we would be now talking about Venus Williams, U.S. Open champion. So it's hard to look at all those results, see her healthy and say she can't do it again. It's, you know, in general, you would expect that someone at 38 couldn't, but most people at 38 didn't do what Venus just did at 37. I mean, almost nobody has. And it's especially encouraging to me that I think we're six years after she announced that her diagnosis of Sjogren's syndrome, and she'd been suffering from it probably for a few years before. So that's maybe a decade of, of dealing with this fatigue syndrome, not to mention a decade of aging from around peak age and managing to do this. It suggests she's really figuring things out about how to manage her her game and, and what she does between games. And she uh, could certainly have lost some of her early major matches this year. Some of them were quite close, but so, you know, it, it could be that we're talking about a similar level, Venus Williams still having some early exits for majors next year, but in general, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged. And she seems to have figured out how to play well at the majors without playing much or well in between them, which on the one hand, maybe makes the majors look a little fluky. On the other hand, that's a formula that seems to work for a lot of older players. Serena Williams, has often skipped tournaments between majors. Federer played very few tournaments outside majors this year and still managed two titles in a quarter final. So um, maybe it's it's Venus Williams sort of acumen in managing her, her body and her game, uh, staying ahead of the deleterious effects of aging. Yeah, and one of the things I've consistently found when I try to look into aging curves in tennis is beyond the basic thing that aging curves in tennis are really confusing and unpredictable is that it doesn't seem to be a very steady increase or decline. It seems to be much more discontinuous. So you'll have a player like, for some reason, I always think of David Ferrer when I'm thinking about aging curves, where they start getting old, you expect them to decline. And every once in a while, you'll have someone who has a steady decline as they age, but more likely they they stick around basically until they don't. So it could be that you know, 38 is the maximum for Venus Williams, and it's where she just can't really keep it up anymore. But unless that happens, it, it, it's, history would suggest that the best bet is just what we're looking at right now. Uh, the weighted average might be a, a slight decline, but the most likely outcomes are just a replica of what we're seeing this year or something a lot worse because she gets injured or her body finally gives out or something like that. Uh, so I mean, just to echo your conclusion, I think it wouldn't be surprising at all to me to, to see Venus do something very similar again next year, uh, especially in the slams, as you point out, as she seems to be optimizing her schedule around performing well in the slams. So let's talk about some of the women who did not play as well. Uh, lots of disappointments. We had all those women who had a shot at number one coming into the U.S. Open, and of course only one of them made it, and that was Muguruza who made it without actually advancing that far in the draw. Um, of all these women who didn't get as far as they would have liked, despite their seeds and their hopes and the rankings, uh, what do you think the most disappointing or the biggest disappointments were in the women's field? Well, by seed, it would be Simona Halep because she was the second seed and lost in the first round. But she was facing Maria Sharapova and played, I think, a really good, if not great, match. So I can't be... The the raw outcome is disappointing, but I don't think you could call her the most disappointing, or I wouldn't call her the most disappointing. Uh, Kerber, defending champ, number one for much of this year, lost meekly in the first round, but she's been doing that all season. And she also had a really tough first round matchup in Naomi Osaka. So I think a lot of people expected that result. So, so those are two tough draws. Um, I think, I, I don't even remember who Kanta lost to. So I think that that was pretty disappointing. Uh, I'm not saying I necessarily would have remembered if it was, was it, um, it was someone who, uh, you'll remember the name, but it was someone who was like pretty promising earlier in her career, but isn't ranked that high, hadn't had that many big wins recently. Is that a fair description? It, it, I believe it's Alexandra Krunich. Um, some people have been excited That's about correct. her in the past. I'm not, yes. sure if she's, I'm not sure if she's much of a super prospect. I think she had a good run a, a couple of years ago, maybe third round of the U.S. Open or something like that, and people got excited about her. She's got a, a fun personality, and she's she's got a big game for someone so small, but that's 
not a good outcome for content at all. I mean, this, this is the sort of event that I would say quarterfinals minimum is, is a fair expectation for Johanna Conta. Yeah, Conta's had a pretty pretty rough run of late. I guess she, she made it fairly deep in the Wimbledon draw, uh, but otherwise has had, I think, a pretty disappointing few months uh, during a period where, where number one was really there for the taking with her strong start to the year. Yeah, just scanning it. I mean, really, really, just a, a lost um, American hardcore season. First round in Toronto, quarterfinals in Cincy. Now, now in those tournaments, she lost to Makarova and Halep, so those aren't really bad losses. And that's the same reason why I, I don't find Wozniacki to be the most disappointing because Makarova, she's not ranked in you know high enough to be seated at a major, but we know that she is a really dangerous player. She's been in the top 10. She's beaten so many top 10 players at majors. So I think some of, some of this is women who have been inconsistent then facing pretty tough players early in the tournament. Yeah, and as you're hinting a little bit with the wozniacki Makerova comment, there's not a huge difference in the WTA right now between number five and number 30 or even 40. I mean, some of that is just players who have had had bad runs or injuries, uh, but I mean, it, down in that lower range, you've got people like Makarova, Julia Gerges, Carla Suarez Navarro, people who aren't. I mean, in the case of Makarova and Suarez Navarro, not that far removed from the top ten, and it doesn't seem like there's that much of a distance between being number one, like Kerber was not that long ago, and having a having a bad run that's within the capability of almost any player on tour right now to match and end up outside of the top 10 just in the course of, of a few months. So it seems like we have a lot of, of parity on tour, a lot of matches where literally anything could happen. Uh, the, the one the one disappointment that, I'm not sure if this is quite fair, but I, I put Sharapova down in my notes here because fourth round is a in a lot of ways, a great result for her because she's she's struggled with just getting herself back on court and healthy for consecutive matches. So it's great that she got as far as she did, and obviously it's a, a big accomplishment to get past Simona Halep in the first round, even though she's had uh, she, she's been able to win against Simona every time they've played before. Uh, but the fact that she fought through all that just to lose to Savastova in the fourth round, I mean, I love Anastasia Savastova. She's one of my favorite players to watch, but... Sharapova should have won that match, and had she won that match, given the way the rest of the draw shaped up, and we could be talking about Maria Sharapova and her amazing comeback to U.S. Open champion. So I, I think that that one's going to hurt a little bit, but of course um, she'll be back with more opportunities, especially if she keeps drawing Simona Halep early on. Well, that, see, uh, even though she swept Halep, I think that match was so close and Halep certainly could have won. I think Halep right now overall is a better player than Sharapova still coming back and rusty. And given that she hadn't strung together more than three wins before, I think saying, okay, she'd beat two players. She probably should. And then would win one out of two against Halep and Savastava. To me, that's not a disappointment. It's just the sequence of those events. Like certainly if she'd lost in the first round to Savastava, we'd say disappointment. If she lost in the first round to Halep, I think we'd say, all right, she's still coming back. This is, the player who's on the verge of being number one in the world, she's playing against, that's not really a disappointment. That's true. I, I, I do think, though, there are not very many players you can look at and say she's a definite threat to win this title. I mean, and I wouldn't have said that about Sloan coming in, so I guess that shows what I know. But uh, you're right about the health. Like I said, it, it's, it's a win for her just to make it through four matches without getting injured again or having to withdraw. But given that she got as far as she did, I think I Savasta think was a missed opportunity for her. Uh, but anything else about the women before we switch over to the men? We could talk about the women all day, I know, but we don't want to do that every episode. Um, anything else, Carl? I'm. I haven't seen much of her, but I'm really interested in this resurgence of Julia Gerges, just because I didn't see it coming, and I especially didn't see it coming on hard courts. I'd really thought of her as toughest on on clay, but she's had this really great uh, run lately, and it, it included 
a final on grass, uh, beating some good players along the way. She actually didn't do much on the on clay at all, and was outside the top 50. And then she's had this really good run. Uh, made the final in in DC, the quarters in Cincy. She lost a three setter to Sloan at the U.S. Open. She, you know, she could be in the top 20, maybe even in the top 10 before long with that with the run she's had recently. Yeah, definitely in the top 20. Since I see she's up to 26 right now, and and just to summarize a little bit what you said, she in the space of what about two months, Julia Gerges made finals on all three surfaces. So first in Majorca, uh, where she absolutely blasted through the field, and she beat Pavlyuchenkova, Lisicki, and Cece Bellis in straight sets, in losing a total of what five, seven, eleven games in three matches. Um, played three sets against Sevastova. Then after Wimbledon, she went to Bucharest on clay. Not a tough draw at all, but she did get through to the final there. And then, as you say, Washington final as well. This one on hard, which is just a totally different set of conditions than uh, either Mallorca or Bucharest, and played a three-setter against Makarova in the final there. So, so yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's another th- another instance where if Sloan had been a little worse, if things had gone a little differently, we could be talking about a very different star from this tournament. And yeah, the, with, with her game, another really aggressive player, she she's the sort of person who wouldn't be a, wouldn't be shocking to see her landing in the semifinals of a slam. It just just hasn't happened. So let's switch over to the men. Let's start with the final, which I know you were able to watch live, Carl. Um, as we know, Rafa blasted through the last few rounds of the draw. He had a pretty lopsided opportunity there against Kevin Anderson, one of the weakest Grand Slam finalists in, in years. The era of the Big Four apparently didn't last all the way through 2017. But the score didn't look super lopsided, 3-3-4, three, three, and four, I think. Um, but Kevin Anderson didn't have any break points. Having watched it, Carl, how lopsided was it? How much did Rafa dominate this match? Oh, completely. I mean, I, not only did did Anderson never get a break point, but I think the last game was the only one where he got to deuce on Rafa's serve. And I also, I think Anderson managed to go up 3-2 in the first set before losing the last four games um, by holding serve, but he had to... I think Rafa won, had won something like 18 or 20 serve points by, uh, return points by that point, just because those games kept going long. Rafa kept getting break points and not breaking. Um, and then in the second two sets, I'm pretty sure Rafa broke really early, maybe even the first return game of each set. And just given how untested he was on serve, those sets felt over early. And... It was difficult to to blame Anderson too much for it. I think there were some tactical things he could have changed, but a lot of them would have involved executing shots that aren't the ones he's most comfortable hitting. So Rafa really just, you know, had, in addition to being a better tennis player overall, had a strategy that that was going to make it very tough for Anderson to to get ahead. I think Anderson's best bet was to somehow hang on in his service games and then get lucky in a tie break. But doing that three times out of five against Rafa is, is far from guaranteed. And he wasn't even able to really come all that close to getting to a tiebreaker. So yeah, it was a pretty anticlimactic finish and especially so because we, we expected it to be. So it was a predictable one-sided match and that's, that's not what you want in a slam final. I think your forecast was giving the top half of the draw when Federer was still in it, something like a 95% chance in the final because Federer was your highest rated player by ELO going into the tournament. Although maybe shouldn't have been given that he looked injured in the final in Montreal and then withdrew from Cincinnati to rest and looked shaky early in the tournament. But anyway, even after Fed went out to Del Potro in the quarterfinals, you were still favoring the top half of the draw heavily and gave Rafa something like a 92% chance in the final. And that felt right, and it it sort of corresponded to how one-sided it was. Yeah, it definitely was that. And one stat that I don't look at too much because it's really just a proxy for other things that we have, have better information on, but you're talking about how Anderson never really challenged on the Nadal serve. Anderson was always fighting in his own service games. It's interesting just to see the difference in how many service points both players play. 
And in this final, there were 180 total points. 108 of them were Kevin Anderson's service points against 72 service points for Rafa. And given that most of the time in most matches, players are playing the same number of service games or the difference is going to be a maximum of one, then that's a whole lot more points in Anderson's service games. And since you can usually trust uh, men to be some baseline level of pretty good servers, if you have that kind of difference, it's really just telling you one thing, that one guy is struggling way more. And 108 to 72 is, I'm not sure exactly how big the gaps can get, but that's about as big as a gap as I can remember seeing. So in a very simple way, that, that tells the story of the match. Now you mentioned that you felt like Nadal had a good plan going in, a strategy to beat Anderson, and that strategy apparently included standing way back to return Kevin's first serves. Um, do you think that was was sound or maybe just Rafa wanting to feel better? I mean, it, obviously it worked, but do you think it's a good idea for him to take such a defensive position? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know it's being heavily criticized, and it was the second serve, too. He was way back. And I think, in general, Rafa's comfortable doing that, and part of that is that he plays so much on clay and is best on clay, and... Uh, you can that's generally just a better position to be playing on clay than other surfaces but in particular i think it made sense against anderson because anderson has a really big serve but not always the most precise in terms of hitting the the corners like what you're really giving up by being that far back is two things you're i'm probably missing one but the two main ones that come to mind are if a guy can hit the the lines uh, from the from the width point of view, if they can hit the T or the sideline, uh, then it's going to be harder for you to cover that ground and get to it because the ball will be able to swing away from you more. There's more room to do that, especially if there's a lot of spin on the serve. But that's not real. Like Anderson's best serve, he doesn't have like a great slider serve. He doesn't hit the lines uh, as much as some other big servers. That's my intuition. I, I would want to see the stats on it. Uh, and then the second thing is you give up that if the server wants to serve in volley, then you're in a pretty tough position to hit a pass just because you're going to be so far back that the, the volleyer should have time to get to adjust position and get to the ball. But Anderson is not a very good volleyer. So Anderson wasn't really in a great position to take advantage of it. I heard people around me saying, well, he should drop serve. But how many guys can really execute under pressure a drop serve or have even ever practiced it? And do it repeatedly, uh, especially on a hard court, which is probably the worst surface to hit any kind of drop shot on. So, yeah, I think it it was a strategy that I'm sure Rafa felt comfortable with, but also was one that Anderson was ill-equipped to take advantage of. Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't know that there was any way around that for Kevin Anderson exactly, given what tools he has to work with in I guess he could have just, as you say, he was kind of trusting and fighting his way to a tiebreak or three, and maybe he was just hoping to come out playing the best tennis of his life, but that's that was kind of the only scenario where Kevin Anderson was even going to make this a close match. So, yeah, what what I wonder about in, in general with performances like this is, is, are we seeing something more than just a fluke? Like, I, I would lean towards fluke with a tournament like this because the bottom half of the draw was was so opened up and Anderson didn't have to score any really big wins to make it to the final. So he only really had to beat the sort of players that we'd normally give him a good chance of beating. But obviously it does wonders for his ranking. Um, he's He had been struggling to make it all the way back from injury. So once upon a time he cracked the top 10, but he was pretty far away from that. Now he's number nine in the race, so very easily could, or not number nine technically in the race, but number nine among people who still might, who are still playing this year. So number nine in the in the de facto race. So he could very easily end up in London. I guess he he will definitely end up in London as an alternate. But given the way this season has gone, uh, it could he could end up playing in the in in the main draw as well. But what do you think? Do you think we can expect more of this kind of performance from him, or are, is it back to the maybe the Kevin Anderson of the time where he had his previous peak of the, maybe sneaking into the top ten, but generally not being too much of a factor at slams? My impression of Anderson is that he has for a long time had a higher ceiling just because he would often lose really close matches. And 
this is another thing that I think we'd have to measure to know if it's just, you know, the matches I happen to pay attention to and whether this is really different than other players. But it just seemed to me that he would come close and then come come up short late in matches and that he was not, and also that he was really good at consistently getting to rounds of 16s and quarterfinals at, at Masters and Grand Slams, but then not winning that next match. And what you really want, we, I think we've talked about before on the show, if you really want to maximize your prize money and your ranking points, and the way to maximize future prize money is to maximize your ranking points now and get better draws, then you would rather win a title than lose in the first round, even if that means winning, let's say, a total of six matches, than you would to make two consecutive quarterfinals, even if that's also winning six matches. Uh, so he, I, I think this is sort of like a long-delayed outcome that Anderson was close to for a while. I, I'm, not to say I expect him to make any other Grand Slam finals necessarily, maybe not even semifinals, but it could be that he uses this better seed to avoid the players who would pretty consistently knock him out at that th- those later stages. And if we are seeing a kind of more wide-open, unpredictable ATP, maybe this bottom half of the draw with the the weird circumstances of Federer and Nadal both being on the first half, in the top half, then Murray dropping out, then Chilich and Zverev both losing early. Meanwhile, having Nishikori, Raonic, Djokovic, Murray, Vavrinka all not in the draw, that's pretty extreme. But it could be that there are more draws that open up for Kevin, and he does seem to beat the guys he should beat. I also thought at his best in this tournament, which I think in- included uh, beating Sam Querrey and beating Pablo Carreño Busta, both both guys who were playing quite well in the tournament to that point, he looked he looked like he had figured out the sort of optimal Kevin Anderson game. He was serving really well. I think his second serve at times has been worse than it should be for a guy his his height, but it looked it looked much more dangerous, like better depth and 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 kick. And his ground strokes were really solid. And uh, Query especially, I mean, had had just dominated Misha Zverev in the previous round. And Anderson was out hitting him in the rallies. Uh, it was a close match, but I really expected Query to win, and and Anderson looked looked really good there. So, if he can start turning those like quarterfinals into into more semifinals, yeah, I, I could see him making the top ten potentially. Yeah, and I think that's an effect of the the big four collapsing a little bit because we had so many years where it just it, it felt like a, a foregone conclusion that those were your foregone, foregone nice. Ah, yeah, indeed, foregone conclusion. And you also had another tier of guys who it, it shifted more, but there were a few guys like Burdich for a while, I think Sanga for a while as well, who pretty reliably were were the ones losing in the quarterfinals to the big four. So it was it was sort of like in order in order to have those unpredict not unpredictable inconsistent results you're talking about like with the with with the occasional deep run you had to get get through some really serious obstacles and I don't know that there's ever been an era before where that held true for so long so finally for these second tier guys like the Andersons and Queries perhaps and and some of the other people we saw succeed this week uh, those opportunities have opened up, and it, it's no, it no longer requires the performance of a career just to make a Grand Slam semifinal, like it seems to for a while. Uh, and obviously this one was particularly wide open, and, and someone was going to come through and have the at least the results of a career, if not the performance of a career, and, and credit to Kevin Anderson for seizing that. Um as we talked about on the women's side, I wanted to ask you, Carl, who you thought had the most disappointing U.S. Open results. Um, big names are, of course, Chilich, you mentioned, Zverev, who crashed out early, and Grigor Dimitrov, who also lost in the second round. Of those, or other names I haven't mentioned, I'm open to any. Who, who do you think this hurts the most for? Yeah, I think you mentioned two who came to mind, Zverev and Dimitrov. Zverev came in with so much hype, lots of media coverage. He had just won Montreal, blowing Federer off the court, although, again, at least late in that match, Federer looked somewhat injured. He'd won D.C. as well. And then he lost early in Cincy, and there was a lot of, oh, well, we've already decided the narrative is that Zverev is is not just the future but the now. And so, yeah, of course he lost early. Like, he's exhausted, but he'll be be ready by the U.S. Open. And then second round, 
very winnable match. Borna Chorich, who's good, but I think Zverev is probably better at just about every aspect of the game than Chorich. And Zverev lost in four sets and, and really came up short late in those sets. So I, he's the biggest disappointment to me. Dimitrov, um, he had been looking like maybe he was ready for a breakthrough, partially because of the draw being open, partially because he just won his first big title. Finally, someone born in the 1990s has won a a Masters title. Uh, sorry, <laughs> born in the early 1990s, I should say, because Zverev was born in the 90s. But in that sort of Dimitrov generation, no one had won really any title of significance until he won Cincinnati. Um, so that was a notable breakthrough, but uh, he did it against a relatively soft draw. And then he lost here in the second round to Andrei Rublev, who is a promising young player, maybe more dangerous than Borna Chorich, but Dimitrov went out in straight sets pretty meekly. And Rublev, it, this is then, you know, sort of adjustment after the fact, so maybe it's not fair, but Rublev did not look impressive at all when Nadal demolished him. And this is a Nadal who lost sets in, in three of his matches and almost lost a fourth. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't the Nadal of the French Open. So, yeah, those were the top two. I also, I mean, maybe I was just out of date on, like, what his fitness and level were, but I thought the the draw, what one person in really good shape to take advantage of the opening in the draw was Sanga, and he got straight setted by Shapovalov, who is probably one of the the biggest winners of this uh, tournament, making it to the fourth round and 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 just looking really impressive and backing up his Montreal result. But still, that's a really bad result for Sanga to not win a set against an 18 year old. Yeah, definitely, and. I think that maybe the the era of, of crossing your fingers and hoping this is finally going to be Songa's slam or Dimitrov finally be over. Yeah, or Dimitrov's, but I mean Songa is I think he'll go down as one of the main victims of the big 4 era cuz he's really about the same age as those guys and he had the big Australian Open early in his career that everyone got so excited about and we'd see flashes of that game and in a different era that would have been enough. I mean he could have had a Merritt Safin type of career maybe. But as it was, he spent a lot of time in the top ten, but he was always clearly in in the little four, if that, uh, behind the big four. So even more than these guys in the Dimitrov generation, the few players like maybe Burdich and, and Sanga, they're the ones who really got hammered by, by being born at the wrong time. Um... Before we talk about doubles, which of course we want to do, I just have to, to mention the current race standings because it's just so insane, given what we would have expected only a few months ago. So of course we have Nadal and Federer at the top, Alexander Zverev number three in the race, and again, this is the race with injured guys taken out. So um, the race as it's likely likely to be players who can compete in London. So after Zverev, you've got Dominic Thiem in fourth, Dimitrov in fifth, Marin Cilic in sixth, and that's where it gets really nuts with the U.S. Open. 7 through 10 is Carino Busa, Query, Anderson, and Davi Goffin. So And 11, I'm sure, is Diego Schwartzman. No, just kidding. He, he should be. Uh, in my heart, 11 is always Diego Schwartzman <laughs> as the alternate alternate. Um, it, it's just nuts to think of Pablo Carino Busa playing in London at the World Tour final. Final. Somehow it's less surprising to me the thought of having Sam Query there or Kevin Anderson there. But Carino Busta is the name that just stands out to me as as bizarre. You you can imagine him going and having like one of a year like one of Ferrer's worst years where he just he's on the wrong surface. He has a couple bad days and he's just the whipping boy for the rest of the pool. But given that the rest of the pool is not as good as we're accustomed to, um, it's tough to imagine anybody being a whipping boy. Um, Carl, you have any thoughts on this bizarre potential London field? Uh, that it won't, it won't be a very high profile tournament or at, at least the ATP is going to work really hard and organizers are going to work really hard to try to promote these names, but you know, I think Next Gen was was supposed to be the event this year that was promoting younger new names, and Zverev and team, I guess, have become familiar. Dimitrov somewhat, and Chilich has won a U.S. Open, but they're just not the the, the main marketable names on tour. I, 
you know, and, and there's, there's right now Nadal and Federer are certainly planning to play in London, but given Federer's shaky health recently and Rafa at times put, pulling the plug on a season at some point during that indoor late fall stretch, I mean, who knows? Maybe one or both of them won't be there either. I, I would still love to watch it, although I also think Dominique team on an indoor hard court is not that exciting to me. It's, it might be his worst surface. Um, and, you know, a bunch of these guys I just don't see particularly thriving in the in the setting of, of the Tour Finals. Uh, Query certainly could. Who knows? Maybe Sam Query, World Tour Finals champion. It's a crazy thought. And another name that sticks out at me as a possible surprise champion is Marin Cilic, which would be, a, 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 I don't know if interesting is the right word, confusing, baffling to future historians, things like that. If Chilich did have a big World Tour Finals, it would be a, a, a major contrast to his first effort in London where he was kind of the whipping boy of the field of eight. But in this field, I mean, like I said, it doesn't look like anybody is going to, to just be beaten by everybody, but it does seem like something winnable by a Marin Chilich or maybe a Grigor Dimitrov who gets hot, something like that. As you say, not a good service for Dominic Team, maybe not ideal for Zverev, but... Hey, Sam McQuarrie, World Tour Finals champion. Why not? Anything could happen. Why not that? So I've forgotten how much else I wanted to talk about, and I see now that we do not have a ton of time left, but I do want to touch on the U.S. Open doubles a little bit and start with the Bryan brothers, who have, I think you put it this way uh, several episodes ago, that they've been on retirement watch all season, and they they had a good event here making the semifinals. Uh, do you think this is their their last stance? Do you think we could be getting a, a retirement announcement coming down the pipe? You know, I thought that it was a there's a it it would be make so much sense for them to retire at the U.S. Open, not necessarily this U.S. Open, but that that is the event where, much like Andy Roddick retired in 2012 and got that outpouring of love, the Bryans, to my disappointment, don't always draw full houses at the U.S. Open, I think they should. I think if they announced before U.S. Open that this was their last tournament, they would get quite a um, quite a goodbye, and hopefully a goodbye that would last more than one match. It could be that this was the kind of result that will leave them hungry because they really could have won that semi, and and the you know the team waiting in the final was a good one, but one they'd beaten many times and could have beaten. So maybe this makes them think, you know, we should stick around and try to win the U.S. Open one more time or, or go, go one more time through the slams. Could also be they're just going to play out the year. I, I think they're already qualified or almost qualified for London, and they've done well at that event before. They enjoy it. It's a good showcase for doubles. So, so maybe we will see them a bit longer. I, I'm, not rushing, I, I'm not rushing them out of the sport. As long as they want to play, I love having them in it, and they're still a top-five team, I think, maybe top-ten individually uh they're still great doubles players but considering that just a few years ago they had won four straight grand slam titles i would just think their recent drought would feel pretty disappointing and empty for them but again like there's a difference between i think sometimes people when they're starting to speculate about retirement also verge into maybe unintentionally encouraging the retirement and there's really no reason anybody but them and their top competitors should want them to retire yeah, absolutely. As you point out, they, they are still quite high in the rankings. They haven't had the results they're accustomed to. But when you're talking about the Bryan brothers and, and typical results, they're just incredible. I mean, it, it's a surprise when they don't win a couple slams in a season. So there's a long way to go down from there and still be very good, which is where we're seeing them right now. And as you point out, yeah, they could have won that semifinal. Given how good they are, every match is winnable. It's just a question of maybe having a 70% chance to win all these matches instead of the 90% chance that it seemed like they had for so long. Uh, now, the doubles dynasty at the moment is maybe just one player, and that's Martina Hingis, who actually won the, not only the women's doubles, but also the mixed doubles with Jamie Murray. And kind of the same thing with Venus. You wonder how long she could go since she's well into her second career. She's at the absolute top of her game. She switched partners midway through the season, and that didn't seem to phase her at all. Um, Carl, your thoughts on Martina Hingis's success here? Yeah, I mean, I think she isn't. We, I don't think we should overstate. This was her first doubles final since the 2016 Australian Open. She'd really, 
been struggling at majors, excuse me, Grand Slam doubles finals. She'd won a lot of tournaments this year with her new partner, Letitia Chan, but they hadn't made a slam final. She, she'd kind of been wandering in the wilderness since breaking up with Sonia Mirza by her standards at the slams. I think this tournament shows that if, if she can stay together with her current partner, they could continue to do really good things, but that they're not, they're far from unbeatable. Um, and in mixed, I think when, when she calls, people answer. Like she was playing for a bit with Leander Paez and they won a bunch. Now she's playing with Jamie Murray and they're winning. She's an incredible doubles player. And if she can find partners she's happy with and, and make the partnership work. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would always favor her as long as she's playing with with a with a decent partner. I, didn't she start her comeback with Hantukova, and it was just like really, you know, Hingis was was, was pretty insulting to Hantukova and, and dumped her pretty quickly. I think I think she's not a very easy person to to play with, but everybody wants to play with her because she's so damn good. Well, one interesting note on Hingis, since outside of the context of the doubles, since I was doing all this research into um, Grand Slam titles and aggression score, uh, we don't have a lot of data, point by point, shot by shot data back into the Hingis era. But um, thanks to the efforts of, of some of the people contributing to the match charting project, we do have almost every Grand Slam final and a handful of other matches back that far. So we can come up with decent aggression score numbers for people like Martina Hingis, who, who do have all those Grand Slam finals and other notable matches. And of course, it's a different area. It's a different era. Um, there's a, a, a very biased sample because it is just these r- really high profile matches. But caveats aside, her aggression score ranked really low, or not necessarily low, but really far on the passive side. So she's only only was a little bit more aggressive than Wozniacki or Radvanska, a little less aggressive than Simona Halep or Elena Svitolina. And of course, she had a huge amount of success in singles. Uh, and it's interesting to see how much the game has changed, because you have to go far as far back as Hingis to find a player who was that passive and won more slams than Angelique Kerber did, for instance. And, and of course, Hingis is even more passive than, was even more passive than Kerber. Some of that is, like I say, just the nature of the game changing. But it is interesting to, to think about that in conjunction with the double success, that in, in women's doubles, it seems like the players who are crafty, more tactical, are able to translate into double success, whereas on the men's side, of course, being crafty and tactical it has its benefits, but you think of as the future double specialists more the really big hitters, the really aggressive guys. So you see someone like Jack Sock translate his single success into doubles, or even John Isner uh, have a lot of double success. And again, this is just begging for more research, and I haven't done the first thing on women's doubles since I have no database, but it, it would be an interesting contrast if it turned out that way, that that the skills that translated into women's double success and men's double success weren't that close to each other. Here, here's a, a far-fetched question for you. Martina Navratilova won 59 Grand Slam titles, counting singles, doubles, and mixed. Billie Jean King won 39 singles, doubles, and mixed. I think Martina Hingis has 25. Uh, where do you think she could end up? I would say 30 is probably a, a, a reasonable weighted average. I have no idea what her intentions are, but that's an interesting question. It, it, it is the same as when when you're talking about someone like Venus. Like you, you can see, you can imagine Venus in singles making, I don't know, 10 quarterfinals or semifinals in the next three or four years at slams. You can also see her having some problem that knocks her out of the sport in the next 12 months. And... Hingis is obviously a totally different game, totally different situation, but you can tell kind of the same story that you know one more breakup with a good partner might make her might make it more difficult to find good partners might mean this nearly two year drought that you mentioned could end up being another two year drought that she never recovers from so i don't know thirty nine seems like a big ask, but on the other hand, she does have eight chances every year and Again, like you say, she has she has all of men's doubles on speed dial pretty much. So so she can largely pick and choose her partners. So mixed doubles is only five matches, a lot easier to luck into some mixed doubles titles. So I don't know, like I say, 
30 seems reasonable, 39 seems far-fetched, but still borderline achievable. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I would I would go a little higher than 30 for expectation, but you're right that the big wild card is like how long will she want to keep doing this? She does seem to really enjoy it, so maybe indefinitely. I mean, even though Martina Navratilova did eventually retire, she still shows up at the majors and plays the legend, so I don't know how much it's changed her lifestyle. I don't know how little Hingis could get away with playing other events and still be competitive at the slams. Uh, by the way, Venus Williams, it looks like, has 23 uh, in all three disciplines, and Serena Williams, 39. Wow. And Serena is likely not done, especially if, if she decides to play a little more doubles when she comes back. Yeah. Um, we have in our notes a discussion of some of the exper- experiments at the U.S. Open, notably the shot clock and, and expanded coaching. And I really want to talk about stuff that stuff, and I don't want to give it a short shrift. So... I want to put that on our on our uh, agenda for next time, so we don't rush through that. But I do want to give sort of a lightning round treatment of the Davis Cup weekend coming up. It's Davis Cup semis as well as the World Group playoffs. Not a ton of interesting stuff I can see in the playoffs, especially since so many top players are out. So you don't have a ton of big names playing Davis Cup at any level. But Carl, our first semifinal, Belgium Australia. You've got the traditional Belgian team of David Galfan and, and Steve Darcy. Uh, against an Australian team with an apparently motivated Nick Kyrgios and supporting cast. How do you see that one playing out? Kyrgios has not looked healthy for many recent tournaments, and and maybe also his motivation is the problem. So if he really is motivated, then maybe that makes all the difference. But, yeah, he just didn't look capable of, of beating too many players in singles at the U.S. Open based on his form and you could hear mumbling to the physio, almost as if the physio is more of the psych- psychologist, that he was really disappointed that he was playing another Aussie. It was a grand slam, and he couldn't give it his all. Maybe he's had enough time to recover, although he did go on to play two doubles matches despite that setback. But if, if Kyrgios can't win singles matches, then I'm going to favor Belgium for sure. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean Belgium here. Although Jordan Thompson has had a really good year, Kokonakis has looked good in his return. John Pierce is a great doubles player. Um, but yeah, that's that's my that's my lean. What about you? Yeah, I, I would lean the same way. Um, Australia does have a really nice team on paper, well balanced, especially if if Kokonakis is playing well. Uh, but. W- it's tough to expect much from him at this stage in, in his ongoing recovery. And, of course, Kyrgios is a big wild card. I mean, it's easy to construct a scenario in which Australia wins, but we know that the Belgian guys are motivated and have had Davis Cup success in the past, so pretty much have to go with Belgium there. The second semifinal tie is France-Serbia, and the, the French, as usual, are able to field a really good team, um, Sanga, Luca Puy, as well as the doubles team of Herbert and Nicolas Mahou, and against the Serbian team of the guys they have to call when Novak Djokovic is not available. So it seems pretty clear-cut there. It's it's all France, in my view. I mean, do you see any way that France loses this, Carl? No. I mean, it's it's weird that they haven't won a, won a Davis Cup in recent years, but especially given that matchup, yeah, I imagine it'll be 3-0 by the end of Saturday. Yeah, definitely. And if we do have Belgium-France in the final, do you think uh, the the Goffin-Darsis team is enough to withstand the, the really well-rounded French team? So many of the French players have had injury problems. I mean, th- th- that older generation is, is old now. So, yeah, I think they have a shot. Do you know where it would be played? I don't know. I mean, that would be the wild card for me. Um, but I... Yeah, I, I I love the idea of Guffin winning a Davis Cup. I think he could do it if if France does have a bunch of injuries, but when they're when they're healthy, they're such a deep and balanced team and really good at doubles. Yeah, it, it, having that solid doubles team there is nice. And if Sanga or Puy is injured, then they have a couple of other possibly injured good players to go to as well. Uh, no big stars, but. I mean, if your competition is David Goffin, you don't need to have a big star there. Um, you just need to have another player with a decent shot at beating him. 
Um, one more Davis Cup lightning round item. Canada is going to India in the World Group playoffs, and Denis Shapovalov is among them. Do you think that Denis Shapovalov will manage to get in and out of India without injuring anyone? Uh, poor Shapovalov. We'll never forget that that incident despite his great summer. I think he'll pull it off. I, I'm, I'm optimistic. How about you? I think he'll manage. Uh, I, I, I think he'll stay focused. He might end up losing a match because he's trying so hard not to hit anyone else on the court. But, but yeah, I think he'll manage. And last note for this week, we have to mention the what looks like final retirement of Kimiko Date Krum. Uh, she played in the Tokyo International this morning. I, I don't know what to call the, the time that she played because it was the afternoon in Japan and morning when I woke up in European time and whatever time it was today. But she played Alexander Krunic and got double bageled, actually. It sounded like Krunic was, was playing really well, and then by the time she was ready to, to give Date a game or two, uh, Date was feeling the nerves and, and committed a lot of errors. But in any case, it's been a, a kind of a rough comeback for Date this, this year, coming back from, from another injury. So she's retired a couple times, had some, some losses on the ITF level. But obviously... An amazing first career, a really surprising and impressive second career, and uh, I mean, it, it, it's an inspiration, I think, to anyone who's pushing their career a little bit beyond the, the normal age limits for tennis. I mean, we're talking about Venus Williams at, at, and Roger Federer in the late their late 30s. We're talking about Martina Hingis playing only doubles, and here you have Kimiko Date Krum at age 46 now and fighting away competitively at ITFs. So. Really impressive. We wish her the best. Carl, do you have any anything to add there about Kimiko? Uh, just two things. One, despite so many late career matches when she wasn't at her best, she still had a career winning record overall and at Grand Slams. She had, she had a lot of really good Grand Slam runs earlier in her career. I, I mostly knew her for the, the later stage, but uh, it was impressed looking at her older results. And also, what a fun rivalry she had with Venus Williams. She, she never won. She was 0-4, but they had three three-set matches out of four, uh, two of them at Grand Slams, all of them in the in the second half of, of Date Crum's career because she was one of the only players old enough to have uh, quite a substantial career before Venus Williams started playing. And especially I remember that 8-6 in the third loss to Venus at 2011 Wimbledon. That was a great match. Yeah, and I think it's easy to forget about just how good her initial career was, and I think she peaked at number four in the rankings, so she was an elite player, and obviously when she came back, she had some elite-level fitness, even if the game wasn't quite keeping up with, uh, with younger players, but really impressive woman and an inspiration to a lot of people, myself included. So, Carl, any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? Just that I wonder if some of the sort of uh, tepid nature of our Davis Cup talk is also that Labor Cup is coming up. Maybe it's maybe it's deflecting some of the attention. I'm saying that somewhat sarcastically. I, I imagine we're both a little bit skeptical of it, but maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode. Yeah, I think we will. The next couple weeks are still pretty slow on the tennis calendar, even though they I guess they do pick up pretty fast, especially on the women's side. But, yeah, we'll talk about Labor Cup. We'll talk about um, the, the U.S. Open exper- experiments, which apparently is a word I have a tough time spitting out. Um, I've been doing some, some interesting research, if I do say so myself. So we've, we've had that on our, on our agenda for the last couple of weeks and not gotten to it. So I think we might have to have a, a very analytics or, or theoretical-focused episode and give the short shrift to some of the, the second-tier results at some point in the next week or two. So so hopefully, listeners, you would look forward to that and won't dread that. Um, I know that sounds good to me. So, Carl, thank you, as always, for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. And, everyone, thank you for listening. That wraps up uh, Episode 17 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. As always, you can find us uh, at tennisabstract.com backslash podcast or on Twitter at Tennis Abstract or on Twitter at Carl Bialik. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for interacting with us, and we'll see you 